Good morning, everyone. According to the calendar, today is Pentecost Sunday. But I'm a week behind because we don't get to that part in our study until next week. So you'll have to come back for that. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at what the disciples did in the weeks preceding uh, the Pentecost celebration. So uh, speaking of uh, waiting, I want us to, wanted to ask you a question. Did you pray for an awakening in the hearts of God's people this week? Did you ask the Lord to stir the hearts of His disciples in us like He did with them so that we might see the power of God at work in the people of God in order to carry out the mission of God all for the glory of God? Because I want you to understand when I asked that of us, it really wasn't a suggestion. You know, something to do if you have time, if you think about it. It was an admonition. Because that's what the people of God have been called to do. I love this quote from Tozer. He says this. He says, to desire revival, which I think we would all agree we do. To desire revival and at the same time neglect the priority of prayer and devotion is to wish one way and to walk another. And so... Let me admonish you to be faithfully praying for an awakening in the hearts of God's people. And as you're praying, there's a question that Corey Tim Boom asked that, that I think really hits home. It stuck with me all week when I ran across this. She asked this question, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? I want you to think about that. Is prayer something that you depend on to guide your life? Or is it something that you resort to when you're in a bind? Is it your steering wheel or your spare tire? It's a good question. Uh, Slightly painful, right? (laughs) But still, a really good question. Because here's the reality, and I've said this over and over again. Prayer is a posture of dependence. And the absence of prayer in our life can only mean one thing. We're doing just fine on our own. The absence of prayer in our life can only mean one thing. If prayer is a posture of dependence and we're not praying, then it means we're doing just fine on our own. If we don't pray, in essence, we're saying we don't need God. Now, I realize that this is way too early in a sermon to start meddling, all right? Isn't that what Roger used to say? I'm meddling, and I apologize for doing that right up front. But I want you to know I really do believe this is true. I really do believe that prayer is a posture of dependence. And the absence of prayer simply means that we're doing just fine on our own. It's a spare tire, not a steering wheel. And that's one of the reasons that I think our passage this morning is so incredibly important. We need to see, we need to look closely at how the disciples turned to God in a moment of utter dependence as they are waiting on Him. Because when you think about it, as we consider what we've been through uh, last week, they've been on a roller coaster of emotions. I think that's fair to say. I mean, they've gone from the excitement of the risen Christ in those 40 days that they spent with him as he taught them about the coming of the kingdom and all the promises that were in store. And then 
the confusion of the ascension and the encouragement to, to wait, to wait for those promises to be fulfilled. Jesus tells them in verse 4 of our passage last week when he says, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for what the Father has promised. Now, let me ask you this question. How many of you often feel like you spend most of your life waiting for what the Father has promised? I, I, I don't know about you, but I do. <laughs> I feel like I spend a lot of my life waiting on what the Father has promised. Looking to see His hand at work in my life or, or in the life of someone that I care about completely desperate for divine intervention and yet completely helpless to make it happen on my own well if you've ever been in that place i think you know how the disciples must have felt in this moment when they were waiting on what the father had promised So I I think what we see in the life of the disciples this morning is instructive for us. What does it look like to wait on the Lord? How can we be faithful when we feel like there's nothing that we can do? So I think it'd be good for us to ask the Lord to use this passage to guide our life. To to treat His Word like a steering wheel and and not just a spare tire. Let's do that together. Fathers, we come to you this morning, we can relate, I believe, with how the disciples must have felt as they spent what was probably weeks waiting for what the Father had promised, desperate for divine intervention, and yet completely helpless to cause anything to happen on their own. Father, whether that has to do with things in our own heart or things in the heart of people that we love, we need you. We are desperate for you. And we want to be a people who demonstrate faith in the midst of waiting on you. So Lord, will you use the examples given to us by the disciples to help guide our life. Help us to to pattern off of what we see and to learn from what we see in their example. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you will, turn to Acts chapter 1. We'll begin where we left off in verse 12. And before we do, I just want to draw your attention to the outline here because I've listed for you five things of what it looks like when we're waiting on the Lord. One was faithful obedience. Two is loving community. Three, persistent prayer. Four, biblical truth. And five, humble Submission. I need you to know right up front that I did not come up with these five things on my own. Okay, These are the things that I believe come out of our passage this morning. What we see in the disciples is instructive for us. And, and we need to be careful not to treat a, che- a list like this uh, like a checklist or a recipe in some senses. Instead, I want you to look at it as an attitude of the heart. Because the primary purpose of waiting on the Lord is the desire to follow His lead. 
It is a decision to trust in Him more than you trust yourself. Ran across a passage in Proverbs this week that ties to that. Proverbs 28, verse 26 says, He who trusts in himself is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom is kept safe. So instead of seeing this as a checklist, I want you to look at it more as a pattern of life. This is what it looks like to walk in wisdom as we wait on the Lord. This is how we wait with hopeful anticipation for what the Father has promised, which I think applies to everyone in this room. So let's look at it together, beginning in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. I'm going to pause there because I think we see the first example in this one verse. The waiting on the Lord begins with faithful obedience. Jesus told his disciples, do not leave Jerusalem. Wait for what the Father has promised. Now, to put this into perspective, you need to keep in mind that most of the disciples were from Galilee, which is at least a two days journey from Jerusalem. And they've already been in Jerusalem for almost two months. Two months away from home. And Jesus says, stay a little longer. And so what do they do? Exactly what he said to do. Luke says they were on the Mount of Olives, which is likely where the ascension takes place. The Mount of Olives is about three-quarters of a mile from Jerusalem. When we were in Israel, we could stand on the Mount of Olives, look across the Kidron Valley at the eastern wall of the city of Jerusalem. It was an amazing sight. Well, when it says that it's a Sabbath day journey away, what he's referring to is a rabbinical law. The religious leaders had determined how far you could walk on the Sabbath before it would be considered work, which happens to be about three-quarters of a mile, the distance from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. So instead of returning to their homes, like I'm sure everyone wanted to do, they were faithful to obey, and they went back to Jerusalem. And so already, in one verse, here's what we learn. Waiting on the Lord means that we allow Him to interrupt our routine. Waiting on the Lord means that we allow Him to interrupt our routine. It means that obedience takes priority over convenience. Obedience takes priority over convenience. We have to be careful not to chart our own course in life and then just invite God to join us. Waiting on the Lord means we let God lead the way. We don't get out in front and then invite Him to join us. Instead, we follow His lead, even if it interrupts our routine. We trust God more than we trust ourselves. Waiting on the Lord begins with faithful obedience. Look at how he continues in verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. 
these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The next thing we see is that waiting on the Lord happens within loving community. In verse 13, Luke lists the disciples, 11 of them, minus Judas Iscariot, because he by this time has already betrayed Jesus. We also learn that there are women in this group who are among the disciples who are waiting on the Lord. Luke highlights one of them. He highlights Mary, the mother of Jesus. But I assume that there are many women and many men because the next verse tells us there were 120. 120 who had gathered there in the upper room. So I bet Mary and Martha, maybe even Lazarus, perhaps Mary Magdalene were all there as members of this group. And probably everyone who witnessed the ascension has now gathered together in the upper room. But within those seemingly basic facts are some significant implications. First of all, the presence of women tells us that the mission of God is not a movement of men. The presence of women tells us that the mission of God is not simply a movement of men. It tells us that women have value and purpose in God's plan that is equal to men. This was a culture that, that devalued women much more than our own even. And yet Luke makes a point to highlight their importance. The other thing we learn is the magnitude of God's impact is not determined by the size of his church. The magnitude of God's impact is not determined by the size of his church. There were 120 people in the upper room. Now think about that. That's about half the size of our church, and we're really not that big compared to most. There were 120 people that radically changed the world. The magnitude of God's impact is not determined by the size of his church. But I think Luke gives us an important clue as to how that could happen with such a small contingency. He says they were all of one mind. That's no small point. They were all waiting expectantly for Christ's return. Their eyes were fixed on Jesus. Nobody was maneuvering trying to make a name for themselves. Nobody was maneuvering, trying to offer ideas and suggestions. They were all waiting for Jesus, waiting for what the Father had promised. I think it was like Paul tells the Philippians, they were standing together in one spirit with one mind, standing together for the sake of the gospel. I think that's what's happening in the upper room. So, in our everyday life, when we're waiting on the Lord, we need to do that within the context of a loving community. In fact, I would go as far as to say that faithful obedience flows out of a loving community within the body of Christ. The reason I can say that is because 1 Corinthians 12, where, where Paul tells us that God places the members in the body just as he desires. He goes on to say that that God equips them with a manifestation of the Spirit, and hear this, for the common good. He created His church to exist with an interdependence. 
We need each other. It is not good for anyone to be alone. Just think about it from a practical perspective. Think about if you're waiting on something that's really important. You say you're in a waiting room while your loved one is in surgery. Let's say it's significant. Doesn't it help when there's someone there with you that loves you so that they can encourage and support you? Isn't it so much better than sitting there all alone? We were created to live in community. It is a part of God's design. We are called to be of one mind as we are waiting on the Lord, looking expectantly for God to fulfill His promises. And notice what they're doing while they're together in one mind. Look at verse 14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They were persistently committed to prayer. That's what it means. To be continually devoted is to be persistently committed to prayer. It's what we do when we're desperate for divine intervention, but completely helpless to make it happen on our own. What do we do? We pray. We pray because it is a posture of dependence. It is a visual representation that says, God, we need you. Every hour, we need you. That's the consistent, persistent life of a disciple. And I just wonder, I don't know about you, but when I'm reading this passage, I'm thinking, I wonder what they were praying for. You ever thought about that? They were consistently committed to prayer over what was probably weeks, and what were they praying for? Well, we don't know for sure. The Scripture doesn't tell us explicitly, but based on the events that follow, I believe that they were praying for a teachable heart. I think they were asking the Lord to help them see His hand at work. And not just that, to know their part in His kingdom plan. They were praying to be humble and teachable. To understand their part in his kingdom plan. What I'm quite certain of is this. They were not praying for God to do what he already said he would do. They were not up in the upper room anxious and nervous praying, Lord, please, would you please fulfill your promises? Would would you please not abandon us here? They were not praying that prayer. They were saying, Lord, help us be ready when you do exactly what you said you would do. Because you are faithful to your promises. Help our hearts be soft. Help us see your hand at work. Help us be humble and teachable so that we can understand our part in your kingdom plan. Teach us to to walk in faithful obedience. Teach us to, to live in loving community. Help us to be sincere and devoted to prayer. Lord, we know you will be faithful to your promises. But Lord, we need your strength so that we might be faithful to you. That's what I think the disciples were praying for in the upper room. Prayer is a posture of dependence. 
it reflects a humble and teachable heart. It's a steering wheel, not a spare tire. Depending on God to guide your life so that you might walk in the way of wisdom. Look at how it continues in verse 15. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together. And he said, brethren, the scripture has had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who, were arrest, who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us, received his portion in this ministry, Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, the field became known as Hakodama. That is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no man dwell in it. So faithful obedience, loving community, persistent prayer, and here we see biblical truth. While the disciples are waiting on the Lord, they undoubtedly are reading Scripture. They are spending time in Scripture in order to discern what they should do. When Peter stands up before the people, he immediately turns to Scripture. He didn't say, you know, since we've been here a while, I've been thinking. And here's what makes sense to me. That's not what he did. Instead, he says, brethren, I've been in Scripture. And the Scripture had to be fulfilled. See, the the betrayal of Judas was no small thing. He was one of the disciples. He was a trusted friend. But he was also the one who led the soldiers who ultimately arrested Jesus, who ultimately crucified him on the cross. And so a very practical question, if I'm a disciple during this time, is so did all that just happened take God by surprise? Because we sure didn't see it coming. Peter is saying that the betrayal of Judas did not take God by surprise. He said the scriptures had to be fulfilled. And what Judas intended for evil, God has ultimately used for good. He he then recounts what happens and, and he presents it as a judgment of God. There's a play on words here when it talks about this blood money that he was paid for the betrayal, how it then purchased a field of blood. In the original text, that's what it says. Blood money was used to purchase a field of blood. Matthew tells us that Judas hung himself. And from what we see here in Acts, it was something that went way wrong. Because we have the gruesome details of what happened when his bowels gushed out and blood covered the ground. But Peter's making the point. That none of this was a surprise to God. He uses Psalm 65, verse 25 to make his point. And if you'll go back and look at this psalm, Psalm 65, it's a psalm that speaks to the outcome of the enemies of God and their certain demise. It says they will be judged and their house will be desolate. 
and what Peter is doing here, he's saying, is what God promised to David is what has happened with Judas, who had become an enemy of God. Peter is turning to Scripture to better understand very confusing recent events. He, he does not rely on worldly wisdom. He turns to biblical truth. And he says that the enemies of God will receive a certain judgment from God. There's a proverb that says, there's a way that seems right in the eyes of man, but in the end, it leads to death. And that's exactly what happened with Judas. But then this leads to another question. <laughs> so now what do we do? Because Jesus was very specific with his 12 disciples and even spoke of a future day when those 12 disciples would sit on the 12 thrones in a heavenly kingdom. So what do we do with the seat that's left open? Look at what he says in verse, the second part of verse 20. The second one he quotes is in Psalm 109. It says, his office let another man take. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prepared... Uh, they prayed and, and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. So show us which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own way. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered among the eleven disciples. Once again, Peter turned to Scripture to give guidance to their actions. Psalm 109, verse 8. This is another psalm, really, of judgment. It's talking about what happens when the wicked are made desolate. Then what do you do? It says, his office let another one take. So Peter considers this passage to be instructive on what they are supposed to do. Now, there's some controversy over the disciples choosing another uh, apostle some suggest that the disciples were hasty in their decision, that, that Paul should have been the other apostle, and the disciples just got ahead of God. But as I've looked through this and thought through this, I don't believe that that's true, and I want to tell you why. Because everything I can see from this passage is that the, hot, that, that the disciples are demonstrating a, a humble and teachable heart before the Lord. They're prayerful, they're obedient. They're of one mind, so they're unified. They're looking to God's word for guidance, which is exactly the type of things that we should be doing when we're seeking the Lord. And when God does speak, they submit to his will. I think it's interesting how these two candidates were presented in our text. It's as if one of them is more of the obvious choice. The reason I say that is because the way they introduced the first one, there's Joseph. We know him as Barsabbas. Some call him Justice. Everybody knows who this guy is. And then there's Matthias. It's like when Samuel goes to anoint the next king per God's direction. And he goes to the house of Jesse. 
and the oldest son walks up, and Samuel's first reaction is, oh, this has got to be him. Everything about him looks like a king. So he assumes that this is the one he is to anoint, and God says, no, not the one. So he goes to the next one, and he's just like the older brother, and surely if that's not him, then this has got to be him. No, not the one. Do you remember what God told Samuel in that moment? He said, God sees not as man sees, because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Now, look at our passage, what Peter says in verse 24. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen. I see this as another good reason to believe that the apostles were following God's will. They cast lots so that God made the final decision and not them. And as it turns out, I think God picked the one that nobody expected. It was Matthias. And the disciples responded to God's decision with humble submission. They aligned their actions with God's will. The church was then ultimately built on the testimony of these apostles. These were men who witnessed the ministry of Jesus. As Peter outlined, we've got to find somebody who was there from the beginning with John with the baptism and goes all the way through the crucifixion. They needed to see that. They needed to be there when they, the resurrected Christ taught us about the kingdom. They needed to be one of the 120 who was there at the ascension. They needed to see the whole thing because it's upon the testimony of the apostles that the church would ultimately be built. And Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Because apart from him, the whole thing falls apart. And so I want us to think about this passage and go back to our original question. What does it look like to wait on the Lord? How do we be faithful when it feels like there's really nothing that we can do? I want to suggest to you that 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 question applies to every single Christian every day single day I believe that what they're demonstrating for us is what we should be about until the Lord returns are we not waiting for all that the Father has promised and for Jesus to return I believe the example of the disciples is instructive for us it's the example of what it should be to be an everyday disciple It begins with faithful obedience. And we know that because sin blinds our eyes. That's why in 1 John it says that if you say you have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness where you can't see, then you lie. And you don't practice the truth. It must begin with faithful obedience. If we want to see the Lord's hand, we cannot walk in darkness. We have to walk in the light. And His Word is a lamp unto our feet. His Word is a light unto our path. Faithful obedience then flows out of loving community. See, independent revelation from God, in my mind, is a very dangerous thing. I am very skeptical of anyone who comes to me and says, I've had a word from the Lord. Really? 
I'm not quick to take that because it's way outside the boundary of the biblical pattern. God speaks to his people when they are of one mind. Just like we see in scripture. He listens to our persistent prayers. And not because we finally talk him into something. You see, persistent prayer is not about changing God's heart. It's about changing our heart. So that our hearts are aligned with his will. God's will is most clearly revealed in God's word. Persistent prayer must be connected with biblical truth. You see how this goes together? I I think what we see in the example of the disciples is the pattern of how we're supposed to live in everyday life as we wait on the Lord whether we're waiting on Him to do things in our own heart or in the hearts of people we love, when we're desperate for divine intervention and completely helpless to make it happen on our own, this is what we do. This is how we live. So let me close with this. Jesus Christ is worth waiting for. Jesus Christ is worth waiting for. There's a passage in 2 Peter that people are saying that Jesus is slow about his return. And they say, oh no, he's not slow as some count slowness. Because with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. He's not slow. He's patient. Not wanting any to perish. But all to come to a place of repentance. So let me encourage you this morning. If you have ears to hear and eyes to see, then do not harden your heart. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Be expectant. Be ready. Trust in Him more than you trust yourself. There's a way that seems right in the eyes of men. But every time, in the end, it leads to death. So, when we think about what we're talking about, we... I think we have to put it in the context of honesty. It's hard to wait, isn't it? It's hard to relinquish control. I personally find it incredibly difficult not to grab control and be anxious or worried and to hold things tightly in my grip. But God is faithful. His timing is perfect. And He can work all things for a good purpose. All the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. He is worth waiting for. The five things that we looked at in our passage this morning that we see in the life of the disciples is instructive for us. They should be instructed, they should be reflected in how we live everyday life. When we're desperate for divine intervention, but completely helpless to make it happen on our own. This week I ran across a quote from Ray Ortland. If you don't know him, he's a pastor up in Nashville. I have a lot of respect for him. And it just hit me at the right place at the right time. And so I'm going to share it with you in closing, believing that it might apply to some, if not all of you. He said this, dear exhausted Christian, that's all it took. But he's talking to me. Dear exhausted Christian, maybe you feel small, overlooked, overwhelmed, But the truth is, your steady obedience to Jesus, one step at a time, is making a crucial contribution to history. 
by his hidden power, far beyond your calculations or even your awareness, you so matter to him. And to that I say, amen. So if we would stand and let's pray together. Lord, even now in this moment, we want to pray for an awakening. We pray that you stir our hearts so that the power of your spirit works among your people in order that we might fulfill your mission ultimately for the praise and glory of your name. And Lord, when we wait, as we wait on that promised day of your return, and and we know without a shadow of a doubt that today we are one day closer to that day. And so as we wait, help us to live in that same pattern that we see being portrayed in the disciples. Lord, may it begin with faithful obedience. If you love me, you said, you will keep my commandments. May we allow the light of your word be a lamp unto our feet. May we live in loving community, knowing that you created us to be interdependent upon one another. We need each other, so may we not forsake our gathering together, but instead encourage one another towards love and good deeds. And even more, as that day you promised draws near, And Lord, help us be persistent in prayer and not to change your mind, but to change our heart so that what we desire aligns with what your will ultimately intends to be. God, help us to be humble. That we trust in you more than we trust ourselves. That we are unwilling, like Judas, to go our own way. But Father, help us be in a place where we need you every hour we come to you in prayer and we know that you're faithful you so love us may we live in that promise fulfilled through the person and work of jesus christ our savior and it's in his name we pray amen have a great day